Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far-right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far-right. This is All the Rage. Thomas, have you read a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth? As a matter of fact, I have it right here. <laughs> who, who, who wrote that book? That's Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, with a bunch of editions, although there will not be any more new editions, at least from the original authors, because one of them That's has right. passed away. I don't remember which. That's right. Was it Gordon, Gordon Fee? Fee died. Yeah, yeah. He died um, second half of last year. Um, I think he was quite advanced in age, maybe in his 90s. Something like that. Yeah. We've clearly done a lot of preparatory work for this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, one of them is an Old Testament scholar and the other is a New Testament scholar. And they wrote a book primarily for lay people, uh, trying to teach them how to, well, as the title says, read the Bible for all it's worth. Well, when did you when did you first read this? When did you first uh, read the book? Probably seminary, actually. Um, I I don't think I picked it up before seminary. Yeah, it was. Um... It's probably one of the first that you read. Yeah, it was assigned reading for all f- incoming freshmen at my Bible college as part of a like basics of Christianity type course. Well, that makes some sense. Yeah, and it's it's which is interesting because it is a very conservative institution, and you know I t- I'd say the book comes to f- fairly conservative or at least conservative friendly interpretive oh, sure. principles, but they are nonetheless principles that get you out of a lot of the most dangerous, naive misconceptions that most Americans have when they come to the Bible for the first time, whether that's a youth group or, you know, as a uh, born again believer in their mid forties who read left behind for the first time and suddenly. (laughs) Right. Um, And, and yeah, so it was, it was quite good for that. I think in my kind of early, early formation which to be clear, I had a lot of those naive uh, misunderstandings when I first came to the Bible, right? Oh, certainly. Um, I remember the first 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 time seeing the footnote under the pericope of the, the woman caught in adultery that said, not in the earliest manuscripts, and just going down a rabbit hole of, okay, what's manuscripts? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, similarly, I came from a pretty fundamentalist background where Uh, We certainly believed in what I later learned would be called verbal plenary inspiration. We didn't call it that. We just said every word is inspired by God, uh, that God gave to, you know, people the words to write, uh, that every word was, was in a sense, almost dictated directly by God. We talked about interpretive principles growing up. Um, They were often interpretive principles that served the theology, uh, you know, reinforce the theology. Um, but yeah, so I, I think you're right. It, it, it does. And they acknowledge that in the beginning, I, right in their introduction, they talk about sort of why they write it and some of the comments that they get that inspired it. Uh, they say, quote, 
every so often we meet someone who says with great feeling, you don't have to interpret the Bible, just read it and do what it says. And so this book is sort of their attempt to help people move beyond that understanding of it, that the the task of reading the Bible really does require interpretation. Uh, you cannot just straightforwardly read and apply every single line of the text to your own life. Uh, I think the famous example, one that you've brought up before is, you know, Paul says, bring my cloaks from Troas, right? How do we apply that? Like if you just read the Bible and obey, how is the everyday Christian supposed to apply that? You have to understand that there's at least some sort of context. Right. And there, there's actually, there is actually a companion book. I've not and read I think that it's one. all, it's, it's much less well-known. Um, and in some ways a bit more straightforward. Um, uh, but I think, I think definitely, uh, good companion to this one because it does look at the, I don't know how they break it down, but you know, five or six or seven kind of big genres that are present throughout the Bible. Cause you have a historical narrative that kind of verges onto, I don't know what you call it, legal, legal realism, right? Like Leviticus kind of is both of those at the same time. Some of the, um, first, second Kings, first, second Samuels veers into that. Right. Um, but the, you know, then you have poetry, you have Psalms, you have parables, um, each of which is a different genre. And so it should be, um, approached in different ways. Right. Which is the basic structure of, of this book as well. I mean, it, it breaks down the epistles, the Old Testament narratives, uh, the gospels, parables, the law, prophets, Psalms. Um, that's the basic structure of the book. Uh, but I guess maybe we should back up a little bit and identify why are we talking so in depth about what the Bible is and how to interpret it in this podcast? Well, because this is contested ground, right? Between, I guess you'd say the progressives and the and the conservatives, or the the liberals and the conservatives, or um, you know us and the and the Christian right, or whatever biblical biblical warrant, as in the either requirement by the Bible to do something or restriction from the Bible from doing something. Um, but uh, biblical warrant carries a lot of cultural and even political weight in the United States, right? Right, right. And and so the, the question of how you approach the Bible to discern that warrant or to, to justify your claim uh, that so-and-so is a Christian um, or unchristian, biblical or unbiblical, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of phrases. Um, it's a really live question and a, and a politically salient question. Right. And it's where a lot of the, the, the Bible becomes one of the main battlegrounds in these very important questions, um, specifically for that reason, because, and I think we would all agree that throughout history within the Christian tradition, the Bible has played a huge role in shaping ethics um, and morals and morality and what's right, what's wrong, who's in, who's out. Now, um, back up, back up, back up. So you said that the Bible played a significant role in shaping ethics right? Not in shaping law, although it has done that as well, but right. in shaping ethics. What, um, 
walk me through the, the process of that claim a little bit. The, how does the Bible shape ethics? Well, so the Bible in Christian tradition says what is right and what is not, what is licit and what isn't. Um, you know, and Christians traditionally have looked to this book or this collection of books, this set of texts to figure out what are the acceptable bounds of Christian behavior and what are not. So the Bible has been the battleground for a lot of that. And so today in these conversations, as you mentioned, people are going to the Bible and the Bible carries a, an authority. If something can be argued to be biblical, then it carries authority over at least the life of the believer. Now, some will take it further as we've talked about Christian nationalism and say that if something is biblical, it carries authority over everyone, whether or not they recognize that authority. And we can talk about that. Um, but the, in the Christian tradition, broadly speaking, not just conservatives, the Bible has, carries a weight of authority um, such that if you want to make a claim that some behavior or standard or thought or attitude is right or wrong, licit or illicit, having some sort of biblical support, being able to point to some text in scripture to back it up will give that claim more authority in the eyes of most Christians. I also think it's key to point out that at kind of – well, at kind of a broader level, it's doing um, – it's doing and has done a lot of cultural work and especially like cultural shaping work. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the you know, the self-conscious believer for whom the Bible is an authority and dictates their sense of ethics in their own life and their conduct of their life. And then in a Christian nationalist sense, or all which you know, we're all there's a sense in which we're all kind of coming out of centuries of something like Christian nationalism, right? With the normativity of, you know, Christendom and, you know, America being this kind of weird outlier in terms of, you know, religious freedom following from the, um, I mean, from, from the founding, right? But that's not traditionally the case in like European countries or Commonwealth countries, right? You have this much more explicit like state religion and it's tended to be Christian, right? And so you have these individuals who, whether they like it or not, regardless of their personal sense of ethics, are governed by quote-unquote Christian morality or biblical morality or morality that proceeds out of this tradition of um, both the text but also the text's influence on society. And mm -hmm. that's that – and that influence on society is kind of that middle category, right? Because even if you self-consciously reject the Bible as a sense or as a source of authority and if you're in a situation where – biblically inspired law is not, it does not apply to you. You know, you're in some sort of, uh, let's say rational, uh, secular <laughs> type society. Nevertheless, simply from being, having been raised in this milieu that is itself Bible has become Bible shaped and shaped you know, very 
in very deep ways and often invisible ways by this tradition of biblical interpretation, right? Right. Um, and so there's a sense in which, you know, I mean, America is still not a like ma- – it's still a majority Christian country, right? Like the numbers are getting lower. And so, you know, evangelicals are very concerned, like, you know, we're going to be Europe in 20 years and it's going to be a, a secular society and you, you know, go to jail for owning a Bible and, and blah, blah, blah. But still we're not there yet. Right. This is a majority Christian country. Um, but there's a sense in which, even if we are like waking up into a post, uh, Christendom or a time after the normativity of Christian identity, belonging, and uh, etc. There's a sense in which we're still in the hangover of Christianity. In these deep ways, the tradition of biblical interpretation and of holding up the Bible as an authority has shaped just every, you know, it's, it's, it's like total depravity. It's not that, you know, it's not every inch of you, but it is, there is evil in every cell, right? And there, and in, to be American, there is the Bible in every cell, right? Right. And perhaps there, there's no clearer image of that than the fact that the standard practice when taking any form of oath in our country is to place your hand upon a Bible. Right for so it, right. that the symbol of the Bible as the foundation for truth, trustworthiness, um, uh, honor in some sense still is the Bible. Um, and now that's people can use books other than the Bible. We, we, we've moved sort of making that requirement, but that still is right. the standard. Right, you, you, you place your hand on the Bible and you swear because right. it's this, culturally it's a cultural norm. It is. Um, which indicates that we still have th- – that this this book, this collection of texts carries cultural, societal weight and authority. Um, and I think you're right that that doesn't just go away um, overnight uh, and, and certainly won't. Um, but I think it becomes – Within the context of what we've already talked about, um, you know, in our last season, specifically with Christian nationalism, um, is this idea that Christianity and biblical values ought to be, right? That's the claim. Biblical values ought to be the governing principles by which this country is run. Um, And implicit in that assumption is that biblical values are always clear and undebatable. Um, So not only is it taken for granted that the Bible ought to be the foundation, but that what the Bible teaches is undeniably clear to everybody. And it's just only people like us who seek to twist the clear teachings of scripture to subvert them. And I think that's some of what we're hoping to dialogue with and to some degree undermine uh, in this new series that we're doing that, that I guess, as we mentioned a little bit last episode, we're not willing to cede C E D E 
uh, give up the Bible, that there is legitimate, legitimate debates and dialogue and discussion over how the Bible is to be interpreted in terms of shaping our ethics, that the, the Christian right who claim to have um, the authority of interpretation uh, is not as clear as, as they would claim, and that there are legitimate alternative ways with which we can approach the Bible as Christians and not land on the same right-wing conclusions. So I, I guess maybe where we start the conversation is by asking what what perhaps seems like a simple question, but upon further examination isn't as simple as it looks, which is just what is the Bible? And then how did we get the Bible? And then how do we interpret the Bible? And is the Bible a monolith? Does the Bible say one thing consistently? Is there one thing? Or is there tension within the biblical text itself? Um, and I think one of the, the greatest disservices that happens is an oversimplification of what the Bible is. You know, we all, uh, I don't know, I can't say we all, I grew up in church, right? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, right? <laughs> I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Um, or, you know, in Bible, what does it stand for? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? You just read this book. It's it's God's manual. It's God's um, user's manual for life. I right. cringe right. when I remember how I used to teach that, right? This is just God's user manual for life. If you want to get the most out of life, you just read this book and it will instruct you on how to live your life in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God to get the most out of it. Um and that it's one book, right? This idea that the Bible is is one book written by a single right. author who is God. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> the, right. Um, you know, that it speaks with one voice all the time on every issue, that there's mm -hmm. no internal tension. When in reality, that's just not the case. Um, that the Bible is not one book as we normally think of a book, right? If, if you – well, for example, right, this book was okay. one book with lots of chapters written by two people and published at a single point in time as one book. But that's not the Bible. The Bible is a, a library, a collection of texts written over the course of debatably a thousand years? A few hundred years few hundred years. <laughs> yeah, several hundred, <laughs> several centuries at least, you know, depending on um, all that spanning multiple geographical depending locations. Depending on how late you put, how late you place John. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pushing right. the late second century. <laughs> um, yeah, written in two primary languages with other languages making minority appearances in there um, over the course of several geographical locations by lots and lots of different human authors who were to some degree 
influenced by the Holy Spirit, but the degree of inspiration is something that is a matter of debate, even among Christians. Did God tell them specifically what word to write, word by word, syllable by syllable, or was it inspired in some other way? Um, and so I would say you and I are clearly in in the camp of it is not a single book written by a single author, the Holy Spirit, right. at a single moment in time, that it is a collection of writings. And I think this is, again, this this is where unless you are extremely fundamentalist, most people are going to agree with this to some degree or another, right? I, I, unless you're really, really fundamentalist, you're you're going to acknowledge that it was it's a collection of texts written over a long period of time by several different people in various contexts one one hundred percent and you know so so a lot of people who affirm um, plenary verbal inspiration can also agree with everything that we just said right 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 like that's a kind of a almost a uh, step zero to that approaching biblical interpretation, right? But I, I mean, it's a necessary step zero because that is filtering out a certain view on on the Bible and how we should uh, interpret and relate to it. And I, I don't even know how you start that conversation, to be honest. Right? Yeah that that might be one of those we just can't go any further if you can't acknowledge this the simple reality. We don't have enough common ground from which to have a have a dialogue. Um, but that leads to right, it's not it's not like something like King James onlyism, where it's you know small disagreement. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so so that leads to what what Fee and Stuart talk about in their introduction, which is the need to interpret. Um, there is no plain reading of the text that is free from the need of some sort of interpretation. Uh, there's a lot of people who just say, I don't need to interpret the Bible. I just read the Bible. Um, which if you think about it for half of a second doesn't work. Cause if you realize that the Bible was not written in English Right, that whatever you're, whatever we can start that whatever we're reading, unless we are trained in ancient Greek and Hebrew, whatever we are reading is an interpretation. Even if you believe that we have access to the originals, as they were originally whispered out by God, somebody interpreted, somebody translated those, and every act of translation. This, this should be an incontestable question, but every act of translation is in some form an act of interpretation. Nece yeah, necessarily. So in, in fact, there's we should dis uh, disambiguate slightly. We're talking about in, all reading requires interpretation, and there's kind of two levels at which that's true in this discussion, right? One of those levels is interpreted as broadly as possible, it is still true. Like I can't look at a shopping list, read it and understand it without interpretation, right? Like, right. like interpretation is fundamental to what we do when we read a text. And so any text, you know, even apparently quite simple ones can yield misinterpretations or a variety of interpretations, right? Like even trying to fit sometimes um, 
the priority of traffic signs over others. Like if you're trying to read a bunch of traffic signs, which are designed for minimal interpretive leeway, um, there can still be an interpretive element where two different possible meanings of a configuration of signs meant different laws applied or whatever. And it's just, it's ambiguous to the court. It's ambiguous to everyone. Like, yeah, it, I, it could go either way. Right. And right. that's with a la- a language that is designed to be like mathematically precise and uh, give like very specific legal uh, guidance. And then you go to a, a somewhat more complicated text and say, Oh, you're going to read, you know, a novel that requires interpretation because the, you know, the very act of reading and uh, just to get understanding, like interpretation is a necessary step in that, in that element. And so Gordon, um, Fee and Stewart are talking about that to an extent, but the much more relevant category and what they're really focused on is even if reading were relatively simple, the Bible is very complex. So right. reading the Bible requires interpretation in a way that, you know, reading Stephen King does not require the same, you know, definition to this type of interpretation. Like there's an additional element of like active interpretation that's necessary for the Bible, specifically because the Bible is a complex example of reading compared to most of the reading that we do in our daily lives. Right. And the consequences are more severe as well. Most of us aren't reading Stephen King to figure out how we ought to live our own lives individually and govern our society, right? Nobody says, you know, that's Kingian, uh, you know, um, if it were, we, we would probably read Stephen King a lot more closely and there'd be a lot more debate over the, the particular meaning, uh, because the weight of consequences so much with the Bible, um, it requires more interpretation. They've got a, a good section in here about the the reader as interpreter that I think is helpful. They write, quote, the first reason one needs to learn how to interpret is that whether one likes it or not, every reader is at the same time an interpreter. That is, most of us assume as we read that we also understand what we read. We also tend to think that our understanding is the same thing as the Holy Spirit's or human author's intent. Uh, However, we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all of our experiences, culture, and prior understandings of words and ideas. Sometimes what we bring to the text, unintentionally to be sure, leads us astray or else causes us to read all kinds of foreign ideas into the text. Uh, a long quote, but I think that's that's one of the things that we hammer on in seminary that I think at the lay level sometimes – is met with resistance. What do you mean that I'm, I'm just reading, right? I, we don't recognize that we are bringing and imposing our own understandings on certain words um, in the text. And the example that, that fee and Stuart use is the way that Paul uses the word flesh. Um, you know, in vernacular English, we think of flesh and we think of like, you know, I'm pinching my cheek for those of you who are just listening to the audio. Yeah. Um, but the word that Paul used in Greek didn't mean that specifically. So we, we bring assumptions um, to the text that we need to be aware of. What is you know our social location is the fancy word that we use in seminary sometimes. 
Right. Social location, you know, and there's an element of of just recognizing this. This is something that um, the right is absolutely paranoid about, which is the, um, what would they call it? The infiltration of postmodernism into into the churches, right? So into how we interpret, how we do theology, how we read the Bible and so on. But this is a sort of a basic foundational concept in postmodernism is recognizing the subjectivity of each subject, right? And so two different subjects have different vantage points on whatever they're trying to interpret. Um, And so that sort of, you know, standpoint epistemology uh, that sometimes you'll see like James Lindsay going off into tangents about – and how that's that's behind all of our contemporary justice movements and – you know, the causes of, of progressivism in general and the ideas that that kind of infiltrated the churches through the seminaries back in the 60s, right? And so right. that's, in a sense, I mean, they're, they're right yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, the problem there is only – But only because it's become such a basic element in like how we understand the act of interp- – or the act of understanding, right, of, of doing cognition. Right. And the the irony is they will they accuse the the left of doing that, which is which is true, and oftentimes the left does it intentionally, right? <laughs> you know um, where they fail to see it is that they are also doing that from a different standpoint and but fail to acknowledge it. You know, it's no no, we're just we're just reading it. You guys are interpreting it. When in reality, what what Fee and Stewart, even though they're um, more conservative, would say, no, 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 we're all interpreting it, and we have to understand ourselves and where we come from and what we're bringing to it when we interpret it, if we want to interpret it rightly. And, you know, and they will say there is a right way to interpret it, right? Uh, Fee and Stewart are not so uh, postmodern that they'll say there is no such thing as a right interpretation, right? The, uh-huh. the meaning is whatever. Uh, the reader gets from it, they will say, no, no, there is a right interpretation. And the right interpretation is what the text meant to the author who wrote it within that time period and context. Um, And that's what we're trying to get back to. So they say, we're trying to strip away all of the added layers that we bring to it and get back to the pure intent of what that author meant. But in order to do that, we have to understand something about ancient language, something about ancient culture, um, you know, something about ancient thought in general so that we know what the right. author meant, which I think brings us to two terms that get used a lot within the context of biblical interpretation, um, which is exegesis and hermeneutics. Turning this into a real Bible study. <laughs> For Fee and Stewart, they, they break it into sequential tasks. The the first task is exegesis. Um, And so I just want to give their definition of what exegesis is. It's a word that if you're not familiar with it, um, you're going to see it used within these contexts, within these discussions pretty regularly. Um, And if you are familiar with it, it's still helpful to know. Um, So here's here's how they put it. Thus, the task of interpreting involves the reader at two levels. First, one has to hear the word they heard. You must try to learn. 
You must try to understand what was said to them back then and there, exegesis. Second, you must learn how to hear that same word in the here and now, hermeneutics. So exegesis, they say, quote, is the careful, systematic study of Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. What did Paul mean in his context when he wrote this particular text? What did his audience understand when they heard those words? What was the original meaning? That's exegesis, the first task. And then the second task is hermeneutics. Um, Hermeneutics is uh, to ask the questions about the Bible's meaning in the here and now. Um, So it's bringing what was meant then into our particular context. So to use the example earlier, what did Paul mean when he said, bring my cloaks from Troas would be exegesis. What did the, or whoever wrote that say when he said, bring my coat from Troas, um, the original audience, what was meant by that? What was understood by that? What was Paul's intention in writing that is exegesis hermeneutics is okay. So what for us, what do we do with that now? Is there, and so there's often what we would call a, a hermeneutical distance between the original text and now, how do we apply what was written then? And this is where a lot of the, a lot of the debate ends up happening. A lot of debate happens at the exegesis level for sure. Uh, a lot more debate happens in between exegesis and hermeneutics. Here's what was meant then. So what now? And so, well, okay. First of all, you pointed out that that they break it into two sequential steps, exegesis first and then hermeneutics second. Uh, do you disagree with that approach? I don't. Um, I, I think that makes intuitive sense to me that we can't know what it means now until we know until we know what it meant then. But I mean, I'm Jesus also can't speak for- a fresh word. <laughs> I, I think Jesus can speak a fresh word. That's a good question. Um, but that I, I guess I'm sensitive to that because I'm aware of how that's been misused, right? If we just say, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me this, there's no way of, of verifying that. What, what I like about this particular text right. is that it's something that it, it adds a level of scientific analysis to it where we can verify, right? If I just say this text means this to me and you say, well, this text means this to me, how can it in, then in any way be authoritative if it's not just my opinion versus your opinion, which <laughs> is where a lot of the debate comes down anyway. Right. What do you think? That's interesting. Um, I mean, it, it definitely seems very like Western centric and well, that's true. Uh, emphasize, emphasizing of uh, logos over uh, ethos and pathos. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, and I, and I also agree with you that it makes intuitive sense to me, but I mean, it would, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It would because we're shaped in that milieu. That's what we bring to the text. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I, I mean, I do see the danger, especially I think in an individualized society like ours, the danger of the sort of 
But, you know, approaching the Bible is this kind of divinatory object where you're going to ask it a question, flip to a random page, read the first verse, and then whatever vibes it gives you is the answer, um, you know, from the Holy – like that That has the tendency, I think, to be dangerous, especially in an individualized culture. And so the, just the ability to kind of put breaks in front of that a little bit by saying, no, no, you have to, you have to interpret it for, you know, in its original context and what it meant to its original audience, like maybe that's healthier. <laughs> right, right. It, it creates a little bit of distance between the very common, uh, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, right? Which is a popular slogan. And the assumption that every word of the Bible was written directly to us today as if it applies directly to us, Um, which most people, if you get into any kind of honest conversation with them very quickly, it becomes clear that nobody actually believes that everybody has a framework for why they don't apply certain passages of the Bible literally to their life. Um, Right. And so in in many cases, the, the, the Bible and, and something being biblical functions as much as a cudgel as anything else, because people who who claim to to just follow the Bible or follow God's law, a, a silly example is um, just within the past week, somebody tweeted that um, men should wear pants and women should wear skirts and dresses based off of a passage in Deuteronomy 22 about men and women not wearing each other's clothing uh, right. and be- and because God's law uh, is still in effect, but people very quickly pointed out that this particular man had a shaven face, um, did not have <laughs> parapet around his house. Um, he has a structure for why he picks certain things to be authoritative and why he does not follow other laws verbatim. Uh, Rachel Held Evans' um, famous book, you know, A Year of Biblical Womanhood where she went and, you know, tried to do everything that was written in the Old Testament law, literally. So that's another layer to this conversation is that already most people have some sort of framework. No, say this differently. Almost nobody even attempts to apply all of scripture literally to their life. Almost nobody. Everybody has some sort of interpretive framework for deciding what applies and what doesn't, when and where. The real question becomes, what framework do we use? Is that framework coherent? And then what are the effects of it? And those those how questions can kind of be um, kind of be described and the way that it gets described in the in theology a lot is as a hermeneutics of X. Right. And so the term hermeneutics, we kind of mean like the general art or science of doing that cross-cultural interpretation, whatever, like that is doing hermeneutics or that is hermeneutics kind of as a, as a noun, whatever. But you also often hear like a hermeneutics of suspicion, for example, is a specific type of approach to, well, to the interpretive act, right? It's not, it's not specific to like doing biblical studies. 
But, uh, you know, there's hermeneutical strategies that literary critics use when they approach fiction, right? Um, and so of those, like a hermeneutics of suspicion is one that sort of is almost antagonistic toward the idea of authorial intent or the author. Um, but the, the idea is that everyone is shaped in one of these specific frameworks for application, right? And that each of those reflects a different like mode or style or type of hermeneutics. Is that, does that make sense of the language? Yeah. Yeah, so I, the, the question in all this becomes, especially in light of the heated rhetoric, peeling back the claims and the rhetoric and trying to expose what is the underlying hermeneutic that is leading to this conclusion. Um, because we have, especially among the Christian far right, this – that they use – the terms, the term biblical as a cudgel, right? This particular position is the, the biblical position. And therefore, because the Bible carries authority and weight, it is the right position. And here is this verse from the Bible that supports this position. So therefore, this is what you must do. Um, and that's, it's often used rhetorically as a way to shield off or prevent any sort of pushback um, because who are you to question the Bible, right? This, this, isn't, this isn't my interpretation of the Bible. Um, this is what the Bible says, and therefore, because this is what the Bible says, this is what you ought to do. But beneath that, in every one of these, there's, there's other things that the Bible clearly says that they disagree with. So, so the question becomes, how do we expose or interrogate the various hermeneutical skeletons that are beneath these, these claims to a, a, a biblical worldview, a biblical ethic, a biblical approach? Um, and I think so, sort of our contention here is that there's more than one way to be biblical. <laughs> um, and that not everything that is touted as biblical is the only thing that the Bible says about that. And, and we could probably give lots of good examples um, about the way in which the Bible is often in dialogue with among its own writings regarding different different topics. Uh, say a different way that the Bible does not necessarily speak univocally on every issue. Right. And if you think, if you, if your position is that it does, then you have to have a very, sort of very creative, but also with, I guess, authoritative strategy for twisting it into the shape that it, it does. Right. 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 And I think some, something that helps often when I have these conversations is pointing out that, Throughout history, Christians who had the same level of commitment to the scriptures, um, high regard for the scriptures, have had vehement debates over the meaning and application of the scriptures. Um, I don't think 
anybody would say that conservative Presbyterians and conservative Baptists have different levels of regard for the authority of the Scripture, for the truthfulness of the Scripture, uh, for the inspiration of the Scripture, and yet they have vehement debates over topics like baptism. Is Are we to baptize babies or are we to withhold baptism for believers? And these are positions that are held by people who believe that the Bible is inerrant, fully inspired by God, and yet deep disagreements over something as serious as baptism, one of the two sacraments of the church traditionally understood. Um, and I think once we start peeling it back and realizing that good people, honest people, faithful people, people who love God in the scriptures can approach the same text and come away with very, very different interpretations over a given topic that ought to lead us to a little bit of uh, epistemological humility interpretive hermeneutical humility and saying, okay, maybe this isn't as clear as I would like it to be uh, and have the willingness to admit that and say that maybe good people really can disagree on this, that you don't have to reject the Bible. And I, th I think hopefully in a future episode, we're going to interview somebody who is going to um, illustrate this really well for us that even with some of the topics that we've been talking about with regards to the far right, things some, like LGBTQ inclusion is a huge point of debate right now. There are people who believe in the inerrancy of scripture who affirm LGBTQ marriage, who affirm gay marriage and trans identity. Um, and they haven't, contra the accusations from the far right, given up on the Bible. They, they hold the same viewpoint about the scriptures regarding what they are and how we got them and yet have drastically different interpretations of how they apply. And I think if we can acknowledge that, we can have some real conversation. We can have some real, real dialogue. It's peeling back that, well, if you don't agree with me, you if you disagree with me, What's the common line that I hear all the time? Your problem is not with me. It's with God. <laughs> right. um, yeah, but I think there's a, also a slightly more complicated case, which is and pro which is probably where most people identify themselves as being, even if they're not actually in that in that place. But that's where they say, well, I can see how reasonable people would disagree about baptism. Like I look at it and I have my interpretation, but I can see the other side – you know, I can see how they got there, even if I think they're wrong about it. Mm -hmm. But th then you get to it, it, the next issue and it's – but it is so clear that the Bible says and then whatever the – you know, the thing that they can't see the other case on, right? Right. And so it's right. it's not that they don't recognize it, the range of – or that there is a range of interpretive possibilities. It's that they will – or they're – Typically, this is encountered in a setting where they're trying to excommunicate you for the, you know, a different issue on which they do not see the, you know, possibility of disagreement. Right, <laughs> right. and so that's that's right. that's that's messier though. That's that's messier and that's complicated. Trying to manage that disagreement, right? It's true. Yes, um, and at that point, I, I I'm not sure 
I'm not sure what you do at that point, you know, other than say, okay, well, I mean, that that's the way that you see it. Because if somebody's unwilling to at least attempt to understand why somebody can come to a different conclusion than them, which I think is just important, right? How, how could a reasonable person come to a different conclusion if my only explanation is, well, they are either... They love the devil. <laughs> right, right. They, they love the devil. They're... They're just misguided by their own desires. Uh, what's we always hear, you know, people just want to sin, right? So they, they, their desire to sin um, motivates their reasoning. Yes, yes. Well, so speaking speaking of these frameworks of interpretation and describing them as like, you know, according to hermeneutic, um, the hermeneutic impulse that comprise them. Um, you know, a, a one the the example I gave earlier, and one that you hear probably most often is hermeneutics of suspicion, which is taken to be sort of like the standard postmodern approach to everything that tries to deconstruct, uh, find contradictions, um, unseat authority, and 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 so on. Right, kind of a, a literary social justice movement. I think is not an inaccurate. Uh, description of the hermeneutics of suspicion, but the, you know there are other her hermeneutical strategies, um, which I should say um, hermeneutics of suspicion is kind of a big boogeyman of the conservatives or of the far right in terms of this is this is a this is the mode of our detractors, right? Like this right. is how people approach the Bi Bible who want to have an excuse to sin or not to go to church or promote the voting for Democrats or whatever, right? Is that they will come to the Bible with a hermeneutics of suspicion and sort of use the deconstructionist style um, approach to like tear apart the plain meaning that's implicit in the text, right? Like they would look at language around, I think like this is a really good example. They'd look at language around you know, wives submit to your husbands, right? It shows up in a few different places in the kind of standardized lists throughout the New Testament. But, you know, wives obey your husbands, children obey your parents, uh, slaves obey your masters. Those, those sets of instructions tend to show up. Um, but in Ephesians in particular, that section is preceded by kind of a general introduction to like, I'm going to give you some good advice for, you know, domestic living. Um, and... Paul says, therefore, submit to one another, colon, then the list starts, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. But so all of that in this sort of egalitarian reading of uh, the concept of submission um, in general, all of that is bracketed under submit to one another. And so there you get mutual submission of which some particular expressions are loving, serving, whatever, but that doesn't have to be, uh, or that's not the overriding aspect of the teaching. It's mutual submission. But that mutuality phrase shows up in Ephesians, I think only, right? All the rest of the lists don't have that as an introductory head. And so what your right-wing conservative uh, complementarian interpreters see happening is that the egalitarians are coming in with their uh, attempts to, you know, 
find discord or disharmony apparent in the text and kind of pull things apart and tear them apart by, for instance, reading uh, the word from this one uh, one teaching into parallel teachings um, and so on. But they see that as like the methodological approach of our enemies, right? Right, right. So yeah, there, there's there's a story that's told and the story that's told, the way the narrative goes, there's several moves to it. One is the assumption that the Bible is the, the word of God, authoritative over the lives of especially Christians, but maybe everybody. The second move is that, that the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear over these particular things. Reasonable people who read the Bible will come away with these conclusions. If you don't, it must be because there's some ulterior motive and you're trying to twist the scripture to justify your desire to not follow the Bible's clear teaching on this particular issue, um, which makes you a liberal, a progressive, a heretic, whatever. What we want to do is take that narrative apart and illustrate for those who care. And we touched, we touched on this last episode as well. If you don't care what the Bible says, we're not trying to convince you that you (laughs) need to be biblical. We do know that there, there is a subset of people who want to, who, who do have high regard for the Bible and who feel bullied by the people who say that there's only one right way and it's our right way. And it is the right way (laughs) Um, to do it. We want to push back and say that narrative is false. Um, It, 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 we can say you, you can agree with number one. You can agree that the Bible is the word of God in some sense and inspired and authoritative and still rest assured that there are, excuse me, legitimate disagreements to be had about what the Bible says and meant in its original context and how that applies today. That 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 linear relationship between the Bible's the word of God and you must interpret it our way to interpret it correctly, that's not true. And you can have high regard for the Bible if you want to and still call into question the interpretive framework of the right. The Bible is not inherently, does not inherently lead to right-wing American theology and politics. Thank you for listening to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open to the public Discord server, at the links in the description. The intro outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Neolor, used under CCBY license. See you next time.